0: each of the four Gospels is actually very unique. All four Gospel writers were inspired by the same Holy Spirit in their writing. Inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And yet they each have very different styles, very different points they want to emphasize, very different details they choose to include or leave out. And each of the four Gospels For example, There are also things that he does that the other Gospels do, too. Luke demands and challenges us to consider some questions that lots of people still wrestle with today, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth. They're questions that we might think we know all the answers to because we've been in church for a while, or because we've read the Bible once or twice, maybe, or because we've There are questions that Luke asks that maybe we need to reconsider. Questions that we may need to revisit. For example, Luke might ask us, who is Jesus? Who is this man? It may sound kind of simple to somebody who's been a Christian for a long time. We can spell out all the answers about, oh, well, he's 100% God and 100% man. He died on the cross. He was born of a prophet. This time of a virgin, he died a prophet. us to reconsider that question and maybe think about it a little bit more Father, we are grateful for uh, just this time that we have together, uh, just the fact that we got here safely. Uh, I pray that there are uh, no issues traveling, whether it's people who are still trying to get here or people who are trying to go home when the service is over. Uh, thank you for our safety, for our security that we have. Uh, thank you for the beautiful weather uh, that just shows your creativity uh, and displays your power. Um, God, we are in awe of it. And Father, uh, I pray this morning as we start looking in the Gospel of Luke that we would just have open hearts and open minds uh, to what you might have to say to us, Uh, what the answers to those questions might be, questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did and what it means to follow him, what it means to journey with Jesus. So God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time thank you for the gospel of Luke that we have the privilege of reading. God, we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name, who died on the cross for our sins, that we remind ourselves of at communion. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right, let's start by reading Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So as you start reading the Gospel of Luke, the first question that may come to your mind, especially if this is the first time you've been reading it, is pretty simple. The first question might be, okay, who's Luke? Well, we know that Luke was a doctor by trade. He was a physician. We also know that Luke was not one of the original eyewitnesses of Jesus. He was not one of the first twelve disciples. Now, that being said, he's certainly a believer in Jesus. There's no doubt about that. Luke accompanied Paul for parts of the book of Acts, part of Paul's journeys. And speaking of the book of Acts, Luke actually wrote the book of Acts. Most believe, looking back, that the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts actually went together from the very beginning. They were meant to be two different volumes of one big book. So that's Luke. But who is he writing to? Well, Luke says he's writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name, so we know he's not a Jewish person. Luke says that he is most excellent Theophilus, which means he was probably a man of some status, some power, potentially some wealth. That Greek name, Theophilus, can also mean friend of God, for what it's worth. But from the way Luke writes... It seems like Theophilus may not fully be a friend of God quite yet. Maybe he's kind of flirting with the idea of believing in Jesus. He's kind of flirting with the idea of being a full-on believer. He's standing at the edge of the pool. He's maybe dipped his toes in the water a little bit, but he's still just not quite ready to take the plunge and really follow Jesus. Theophilus may still have some questions. He may still have some doubts. He may still have some confusion. And before he truly jumps in and follows Jesus and is sold out for Christ, he wants answers. He wants some clarification. He wants to be certain of some of the things that he's been taught. Now the third question. Luke is writing. Theophilus is reading. But what exactly is Luke writing? What kind of book is this? Well, Luke gives us the answer when he calls his writing a narrative, a.k.a. a story. Luke is simply telling a story. But Luke isn't just telling the story for the sake of sharing facts or conveying information or recording events in history. Luke has a bigger goal in mind. He specifically says that he's writing so Theophilus may have certainty of all the things he's heard about Jesus. That's why Luke goes to painstaking details in his writing. That's why he interviews eyewitnesses. That's why he does his research. That's why he does his homework on Jesus with a doctor's precision. Luke takes very seriously this goal and this challenge of writing an orderly account for Theophilus. He takes this calling and this responsibility very, very seriously, because he really wants to answer Theophilus' questions. And consider another phrase that you see in verses 1 through 4. A phrase Luke uses, what has been accomplished? What has been accomplished? Now, why would Luke say that? After all, that phrase, what has been accomplished, that's not quite as simple as saying, hey, Theophilus, this is the stuff that happened. He didn't have to say what has been accomplished. But for him to say what has been accomplished, he's implying that someone accomplished it. That this story that we're reading isn't just some pleasant story. It isn't just some made up fairy tale. It's not just some interesting set of circumstances or some kind of ironic set of coincidences. This is something much different and much bigger than just that. When Luke says the things that have been accomplished, he's indicating that this story is about God moving and God acting in history by sending his son, Jesus. By sending the one that Theophilus has heard so much about. The one that Theophilus still has questions about. Now, as you move forward in the Gospel of Luke, past verses 1 through 4, as you get into chapters 1 and 2, you see the birth of John the Baptist. We covered that a couple of weeks ago over Christmas. We also see the birth of Jesus. We see Mary's song of worship. We see Zechariah's prophecy. We see one of the unique features of Luke's Gospel that we mentioned a few minutes ago. We see the prominence of women. In the first couple chapters, Mary and Elizabeth get a lot of attention. Meanwhile, the husbands, Zechariah and Joseph, well, Zechariah doubts. And Joseph doesn't say much of anything at all. In these chapters, we see Jesus presented at the temple. Where Simeon and Anna rejoice, they worship that the Messiah has finally been born. The long-awaited Deliverer that they've heard so much about has finally come, and they rejoice over it. But then something changes. We see it in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. We see a transition occur. And when they, Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town Of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, these verses, verses 39 and 40, are actually pretty important because this is the point where we leave the birth story of Jesus. From this point forward, Jesus is no longer a baby, he doesn't stay a baby forever. And when we pick him up in the next verse, We see that he's 12 years old. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances... Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So again, we pick up where Jesus is 12. No longer a baby. Jesus is a preteen. Now Mary and Joseph were good and righteous people. That's why they obeyed the Old Testament law. That's why they made a yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jesus comes along too, but as they're coming home, they lose track of him. We mentioned this briefly a couple of weeks ago. This isn't as though Joseph and Mary are bad parents. It's not like they're neglecting Jesus. It's just these things kind of happen. They lost track of him in a big group of people. So, of course, they return to Jerusalem to search for him. And finally, after three days, they find him in the temple. And what else is Jesus doing but blowing the minds of the religious teachers with his wisdom? Can you imagine being in Jesus' Sunday school class? That's what we have here. People can't believe at how wise this 12-year-old boy is. He's asking questions that he has no business asking. He's giving answers that are far beyond his years. This child is a prodigy. However, you can't blame Mary for what she does. She does what any good mother would do when she encounters Jesus. She scolds him for running off. She must have been worried sick. She must have been overwhelmed. She didn't know if Jesus had been kidnapped. She didn't know if he had been killed. And not to mention, who wants to have to go to God and say, hey God, I lost your son. You can understand why she'd be stressed. But as she scolds Jesus, those words in verse 48, she says something interesting. Look back at verse 48. Can you see what it is that Mary says that is just a little bit peculiar? Maybe she says it's because it's the heat of the moment. Again, she's emotional. Again, she's overwhelmed. Her son had gone missing. Maybe she says it because for purely practical reasons, she's right. But what she says is this. She refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. It's interesting. How will 12-year-old Jesus respond to that? Your father and I have been in great distress. Verse 49. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Verse 49 of Luke chapter 2. Don't misunderstand how important those words are. Those are the first words of Jesus that we have recorded. The first time Jesus speaks in any of the Gospels. Luke two forty-nine. And in those very first words that we ever hear out of the mouth of God's Son, what is it that he says? Well, to his mother, he gently, yet directly, corrects and reminds her of who his real father is. When Jesus responds to Mary, he's essentially saying to her, Mom, what do you mean that my father has been looking for me? What do you mean that my father has been in great distress? I've been here with my father this whole time. I've been here with my real, true father in his temple. Some translations may say, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Regardless of what your translation says, the message is the same. Now, Mary doesn't appear to know how to respond. Neither does Joseph. You really can't blame them. That's a lot to take in. But nonetheless, Jesus submits to Joseph, he submits to Mary, and he returns home. But they treasure and store these things up in their hearts. Now, as you start out the Gospel of Luke, this is where you start to see something that Luke is doing. You start to see that Luke is very intentionally pressing a specific question. And the question that Luke is wrestling with and presenting to Theophilus and to you and to me and to anyone else who reads his gospel is this Who is this man that we're journeying with? Specifically, whose son is this? Who is Jesus' father? Well, Luke has already started to beg the question from the very beginning of the book. In the story of the virgin birth, Luke makes it clear that Joseph is not Jesus' father. Look at Luke 1, 31 and 32. Gabriel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High, not Son of Joseph. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. You add this event to the virgin birth, the event in the temple... Well, Luke is making it very clear that Joseph is not Jesus' father. You go forward just a few more verses, and Jesus' baptism, which we discussed on Christmas Eve, it becomes very clear who Jesus' true father is. When the heavens open and the Spirit descends and God's voice proclaims, what does God's voice say? It says, This is my beloved son. Not, This is Joseph's beloved son. Not that this is Mary's beloved son, even though Jesus is very much Mary's son. The emphasis from God is that this is my beloved son. Are you starting to see what Luke is doing? In the first couple of chapters, he's got one message that he is driving home as hard as he possibly can. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Again, we have another transition where he's not a baby anymore, he's not a 12-year-old anymore, now he's 30. When he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, we're not going to read the entire genealogy that follows, but I just wanted to point out something that Luke didn't have to mention. He didn't have to include it. And yet he did. He includes those parentheses that Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph. He's basically saying, Theophilus, everyone around Jesus thought that he was Joseph's son. He thought it was a typical father-son relationship. They thought it was your average family. But you and I know better. You and I know different. We know that Jesus is not really Joseph's son. He's God's son. And Luke is making it crystal clear in the first few chapters of his gospel who this man actually is. He doesn't want Theophilus. He doesn't want any other readers. He doesn't want you and he doesn't want me to have any doubt or any confusion or any second thought of who this man actually is. This man is the son of God. We see it stressed in the story of the virgin birth. We see it stressed when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. We see it stressed when he's baptized by John. We see it stressed when he's 30 and he's the supposed son of Joseph. Luke is hitting the same point over and over and over and over again. But just for good measure... Luke includes one more example I'd like to look at this morning. And we see that in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. Now, Satan's temptation that we talked about on Christmas Eve, it starts with a challenge. It starts with those words, if you are the Son of God. Luke is trying to emphasize that Jesus really is God's Son. Meanwhile, Satan's trying to do the exact opposite. He's trying to tempt Jesus to reject God as his Father. Because Satan knows that if he succeeds, if Jesus does reject God as his Father, then God's entire plan for redemption, God's entire plan for restoration, God's entire plan for the forgiveness of sins and the coming of his kingdom, all of that stuff utterly fails if Jesus rejects God as his Father. But... Jesus resists. Where you and I, all too often, don't resist temptation. Where God's people didn't resist temptation. Where Adam and Eve didn't resist temptation. Jesus does. Satan fails. He truly is God's son. And Luke makes it clear. Folks, if there's any doubt in your mind who this man is read this story because he proves he is the son of God as he rejects Satan's temptations in the first 4 chapters of Luke's gospel we have 5 different examples that make it crystal clear who this man actually is who Jesus's father is we see it in his birth we see it in his 12 we see it in his baptism we see it when he's 30 And we see it as he wrestles with Satan in the wilderness. Luke has made it very obvious that Joseph is not Jesus' father. God is Jesus' father. And Jesus' loyalty rests with God above all else. Joseph was a wonderful guy. Joseph put shoes on Jesus' feet. He put clothes on Jesus' back. He probably taught him everything he knew about what it meant to be a human and what it meant to be a man. But Jesus' loyalty rests with his true Father. He must be about his true Father's business. No one else's. Now Satan attempts to compromise that loyalty. Satan attempts to cast doubt on whether or not Jesus is truly God's son. But Satan fails. So as he writes these first few chapters of his gospel, Luke is saying, So, Theophilus. So, reader. So, Prairie View. Before we go any further on this journey with Jesus, Before we take a single step on this path that Jesus is leading us down, don't be mistaken for a second who it is that you're journeying with. Don't be mistaken for a second who it is that you're following. Because this man is the Son of God. And now that we know that, now that Luke has made that so clear, the journey can actually begin. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So as we embark on this journey with Jesus together through the Gospel of Luke, may none of us have any doubt about who it is that we're traveling with. May none of us have any doubt that this man who we're walking down the road with, who we're following, this man is not just an impressive teacher or some miracle worker or some compassionate healer or some charismatic leader. And this man certainly isn't just a carpenter's son. This man is the son of God. And as we follow him, it's going to become more and more clear that he really is about his true father's business. And he invites us to be about his father's business, too. And in the weeks ahead, as we read, we find out what exactly that really means. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son has come into the world, that we celebrated it last month, the birth of your son, born of a virgin. But God, thank you that he didn't stay a baby forever. Thank you that he grew physically, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. Thank you that he turned 12. Thank you that he turned 30. And thank you that he started a ministry. God, I pray that as we look through this ministry together, as we see the confrontations with different people, as we see the conversations with other people, as we see teachings and healings and miracles and all kinds of stuff, God, I pray that we would just be fully aware of who it is that we're talking about. Luke doesn't allow us to debate who it is. He wants us to have certainty of who it is that he's talking about. And that man is the Son of God. May we follow Him. May we learn from Him. May we glorify Him. May we worship Him. Every single step of the journey ahead. God, we love You. We praise You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.